Even in some fantastical scenario where Kim Jong Un suddenly decides to give up nuclear weapons and end his regime's flagrant disregard for human rights, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea will still be an impoverished state where less than half the country's population has access to electricity. How will North Korea climb out of this state of destitution? Identifying the challenges that the country faces today is a vital first step. And that is precisely what a new report from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development does. This first standalone report on North Korea from the OECD takes stock of what is holding back the country today and provides guidelines on what might be needed to turn the country onto a path to prosperity. Randall Jones, a non-resident fellow at the Korea Economic Institute, a visiting fellow at Columbia University, and formerly the head of the Japan Korea desk at the OECD, sat down with Vincent Cohn, the head of the Division of Country Studies at the OECD, to discuss this new report. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Korean Context. I'm very delighted to be with former OECD colleagues. I'll just say a few words about Vincent. He became my division head in 2008, and we collaborated on six OECD economic surveys of Korea, as well as six on Japan. And in 2010, in fact, we had a one-day trip to Kaesong to visit the industrial complex. So thank you very much for this working paper. I love the title of it, North Korea is the Last Transition Economy. Usually when we think about North Korea's path of development, people look at China or Vietnam as role models in a sense. And North Korea is very different than China and Vietnam, which developed the agricultural sector and used that to finance industrialization. North Korea was actually an industrialized economy back in the 1960s and a very urban economy. So does that suggest that North Korea's path of development will be more similar to that we've seen in Eastern Europe rather than in other Asian transition economies? I would say that the process of transition is very haphazard in uh, North Korea uh, with fits and starts, without a clear vision for the destination uh, and without a clear model, uh, be it China, Vietnam or Eastern Europe. Perhaps uh, just briefly some historical background on what happened in North Korea. And North Korea missed the boat in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and Eastern Europe embarked on a transition partly probably because Kim Il-sung feared losing control over the people. And then when he died in 1994 and his son took over, he also was apprehensive about losing control. And as a result, this collapse of the Soviet Union and the change of terms with China led to a very deep crisis with a major famine and hundreds of thousands or more of casualties. And this famine, in turn, prompted marketization from below in the food sector, with households growing food on small plots of land and selling the surplus in local informal markets, which over time became general markets. This process of transition has been with stops and goes. For example, in the late 2000s, as we documented in our paper, Kim Jong-il tried to reverse marketization because he worried about its political implications, control over the regime. And he took measures to restrict the activity in markets. And then in 2009, he went for a monetary reform, which was essentially confiscation and ended up disastrously with the effect of spurring dollarization, or should I say, perhaps in the case of North Korea, yuanization, 
when Kim Jong-un replaced his father in late 2011, he gave a new impetus to marketization and modernization, but also timidly and also in fits and starts. We regularly read about crackdowns on markets. The Bank of Korea's guesstimates suggest that the North Korean economy shrunk by 4% or so in 2017 and another 4% in 2018. But how reliable are these data? North Korea is a statistical black hole. At the OECD, we're very much used to comparing countries by using scores of data. But the problem with North Korea is there are no really real data. We have to rely on other sources of information, uh, ranging from satellite evidence to mere statistics made in China to anecdotes. And they're all, of course, very imperfect. To observe, however, and we documented it in our paper with Gene Wan, is that the sanctions have had an effect on trade flows. Some of the trade flows have clearly been affected. But these are trade flows measured by the mirror statistics. These mirror statistics are the, the data that China produces. But of course, these data completely miss what is going on in terms of smuggling. And there's a lot of smuggling across the border. China apparently is no longer uh, as zealous uh, with respect to implementations of the UN sanctions. That said, the sanctions do hinder imports of critical inputs for industry and agriculture. We read reports, for example, of fertilizer plants that struggle because they can't get the inputs they need, which are important inputs. We also read about humanitarian efforts that are hampered by some of the sanctions, uh, even though in principle they should not be. So you asked, Randall, whether sanctions, if they were uh, lifted, would unleash growth in North Korea. I would argue that it's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient one. Corruption, red tape, coupled with the outsized resources spent on the military, hold back economic development even more than, than the sanctions. Do you think it would help with the special economic zones? Korea's had these zones since, I think, 1991. And since 2012, I think there are 20 more of these special economic zones. And these are a bit different because most are located next to China geographically. And many are started by local governments rather than the national government. So do you see much optimism or hope that these special economic zones will finally start to play a role? Even Kessin was not really a success it was supposed to bring together the comparative advantages of the two Koreas, with South Korea developing the land and power infrastructure. Its firms invest in the facilities, while North Korea provided low-wage workers. But we should remember that it really failed miserably if you look at the ambition that underpinned this project. The ambition was to have 2,000 enterprises and 350,000 workers. The zone never had more than 125 enterprises and 55,000 workers. So it remained very small. And in fact, its operations were interrupted several times. So as you say, Randall, they have created quite a few other zones, notably connected to China, even though those zones were mostly to facilitate industrial and technological catch-up rather than testing grounds for economic reforms. So by design, they were not quite as ambitious as Kesum. And foreign partners have been reluctant to engage, preferring to stick to trade rather than investment. Why? Well, they just face too many major obstacles. First of all, the rule of law uh, doesn't exist. It's rather the rule by law, I mean, in the sense of the law being used against you. Of course, wages and rents are low, but then foreign firms need to bear the cost of infrastructure development. And they face corruption everywhere they look. 
Plus, there's the international sanctions and the uncertainty associated with how they may evolve. And then, last but not least, there's a reputational risk taken by, by firms who might go ahead. So all in all, it's really, really problematic to attract foreign investment in North Korea. I would recommend an excellent paper by Theo Clement that KEI published last year on the, on the special economic zones in their academic paper series, which is uh, the best piece that I've uh, encountered uh, on the subject. In terms of uh, specific sectors, the government is targeting tourism as a way of getting foreign currency. And it's attractive because it's not covered by the United Nations sanctions. Before the pandemic, about 90% of tourists were Chinese. Uh, do you think it's realistic that after the pandemic eases that North Korea can be successful in making tourism a source of growth? Well, as you say, tourism is one of the few sectors that are not subject to international sanctions at the moment. And so it is a potential significant uh, currency earner. Uh, there are many beautiful sites in North Korea. So it does make sense in principle for the regime to try and leverage this uh, potential source of income. Whether the considerable investments made by the regime in, in these resorts are the best use of uh, scarce public resources is another question. Looking at the other sectors, manufacturing, for example, uh, that's fallen from about a third of GDP down to about a fifth reflecting a very weak and out-of-date capital base. Uh, South Korea's economic takeoff in the 1960s and 70s, fixed investment accounted for about 25% of GDP. In North Korea, the military accounts for about 25% of GDP. Do you think it's necessary for North Korea to have a peace dividend in order to reignite the manufacturing sector? heavy industry collapsed completely uh, during the 1990s and never recovered. Light industry did a little bit better, recovered most of the lost ground, but even then performance has been uh, mediocre. And then services uh, did better still, they actually grew, but they grew by less than 1% on average per annum over the past three decades. So especially by Asian standards and especially for an economy starting from such a low level, this is really a dismal record. And yes, as long as resources go massively into the military, it's hard to see the industrial sector or the broader economy uh, take off in earnest. Peace dividend could help spur economic development. That's true, especially if it comes as it would, uh, presumably, with the lifting of sanctions. But as we discussed, other conditions are crucial as well to do with the legal framework for economic activity and the rule of law more generally. One of the problems for manufacturing is the lack of electricity. And we know that generation electricity in North Korea is only about 5% of the South. I read the World Bank uh, said that 57% of North Koreans do not have access to electricity. So this seems to be a major bottleneck in trying to develop uh, industry as well as other sectors. But what do you think could be done to try to promote better access to electricity in North Korea? Electricity shortages are indeed a major and recurrent issue in North Korea. The generation of electricity by 2018 was 10% or so below the level in 1990, even though the population grew in the meantime. Electricity provision varies greatly across regions, and power shortages are clearly much worse outside Pyongyang. But they even affect Pyongyang and they affect the army and some core national defense institutions uh, at times. So there's it, it really, really a major problem there. And what is Korea doing uh, to address it? Well, 
avenue has been assistance from Big Brother China. Recently installed Chinese generators supply around 40% of Pyongyang's power use, for example. And another avenue is the development of alternative and greener energy sources. For example, the installation of small-scale solar panels in farms, nurseries, and so on. There are now over 100,000 homes that have solar equipment on their roof. That would also be a way to address the problem of air pollution, which is very severe in North Korea. Of course, another avenue would be to improve the energy efficiency of the industrial sector, which is very poor. But this would require major investment. And we have discussed already what obstacles stand in the way of a major investment. Uh, let's talk about the Donju, this mercantile class that's been created by the marketization. The Donju evidently are major financers of many government projects. I read recently that the government in North Korea is going to issue bonds to try to tap in to the foreign currency held by the Donju. To what extent do the Donju, have they replaced state financial institutions? And how can the government fully use their resources to pursue its projects? Uh, excellent question. The Donju originally engaged in cross-border smuggling and, and they worked for the trading companies under the Workers' Party, the military and the government agencies that were involved in exporting raw materials and importing finished products from, from China mainly. So in that sense, yes, indeed, they initially built their wealth and influence based on the country's isolation and they accumulated a considerable capital and influence. With that, they've expanded their activities in market for consumer goods, for transport, distribution, and importantly, as you mentioned, Randall, for money lending. They, they are, act as private financiers for, for various business ventures, and they play also an important role in, in the circumvention of international sanctions, to hark back to what we discussed earlier. They also run businesses within uh, the shell of state-owned enterprises, which is a very peculiar form of entrepreneurship, which a very few OECD countries uh, know about. I would underline that the government colludes with the Donju. It can be to keep the price of rice stable, or it can be to undertake complex projects that require money and international sourcing. But collusion doesn't mean that there are no tensions between the government and the Donju. And the example you mentioned is very relevant, Randall, that of uh, the recent issuance of public bonds. I think one of the questions that's being asked by our listeners is also about that. This is the first issuance since 2003, and uh, factories, enterprises are being pressured to purchase these bonds, as are the Donju, and these bonds have to be paid with hard currency. So it's basically one of the many ways in which the regime tries to cope with the depletion of foreign exchange reserves and uh, with the need for financial resources. And uh, needless to say, many of the Donju are quite upset by this attempt to uh, sequester some of their resources this form of financial repression is not one they appreciate. The Donjus have also, as you alluded to, Randall, uh, been playing a big role in the real estate development sector. And then the Donju uh, get sort of compensated for the investment they make by uh, getting and building usage rights after construction. They have used their clout to raise their influence and social status and advance their economic interests. And they, they receive medals and awards for their donations which can serve as a mitigating factor when they are punished for legal activities. For me, the Donju are very much the North Korean hybrid economy's rent-seekers. They contribute to and benefit from a form of stability, and they may not have a vested interest in genuine regime change. So they may be an obstacle to genuine reform. 
know that Andre Lenkow, the expert in South Korea, compares them to a species of fish that survive in the very depths of the ocean. And once uh, North Korea normalizes, they'll no longer survive in this very peculiar environment. So it raises the question, do they really want Korea to normalize, uh, become a, a normal market economy? OEC has a lot to teach North Korea and other countries as well on best practices in successful countries. We don't have money to lend, but we certainly have a stock of technical knowledge. I think that'd be very useful on how to run a census, how to run a tax system, uh, et cetera, across the board. And we have a number of questions that we have time to go through. Let's start with one from Robert Gay. And he asks, does it seem that Kim Jong-un puts less emphasis on the Judge doctrine or self-reliance or autarky than his father and grandfather, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung respectively? I ask this because your working paper mentions a rise in real estate prices, which would indicate the state appropriate housing has been lessened and the marketization of the services and consumer goods sectors to uh, state-owned enterprises? Well, initially, that was indeed the impression. Less emphasis would be put on Juche. But lately, the official press in North Korea has been playing up Juche again, perhaps due to the circumstances with the COVID-19 crisis. Of course, uh, cross-border flows are seriously hampered, notwithstanding the resumption of some trade uh, on the Chinese border. And so in that context, we have had uh, statements, for example, that state-owned enterprises should henceforth produce their own raw material, which is sort of a negation of the concept of value chains across firms. And this has upset quite a few enterprise managers because they don't see how they could produce the raw materials that they need to produce what they're supposed to produce. In that sense, the self-sufficiency concept has regained some prominence, but this is sort of forced by the circumstances and may not last. Hopefully it won't, because it is, of course, an illusion that you, you can uh, rely only on, on your own forces if you want to prosper and to become a, a developed economy. There's a question from uh, Bill Brown. And this is about the uh, question of the bond sales that we mentioned. He asks, is this a sign of desperation by Kim? Is this regime running out of options? And will it lead to rampant inflation and a devaluation of the one? Well, it is true that this is the first time in almost 20 years that uh, the regime is issuing bonds. And these are not bonds like bonds that are issued in OECD countries. These are a way basically to force actors, in this case, enterprises and donju, to uh, <laughs> give up some of their hard currency to the regime. In that sense, yes, it's an act of desperation because the, the regime would not resort to this kind of measure and upset the Donju, who are their best supporters, if it didn't need to, to do that. At the same time, the regime is undertaking a number of ambitious, high-cost projects. So there is this tension that how, how can you at the same time <laughs> have these military ambitions, these uh, grandiose tourism resorts uh, ambitions, uh, build this uh, fantastical hospital in Pyongyang, uh, which is supposed to be very modern, and, and so on without resources and with uh, basically very little foreign trade, foreign trade mostly in the form of smuggling and a moribund uh, domestic sector, especially in heavy industry, but uh, not much better in other domestic sectors. Uh, Liz Kim from Voice of America has a related question. What does this say about North Korea's uh, foreign exchange reserves? Are they going through a sharp decline because of border closure and the sanctions? And how serious is the foreign reserve crisis right now? Well, this is a question that's really difficult to answer because 
even OECD countries are, are often very secretive about the, the amount of forex reserves that they actually have. China has long been very secretive. It's a bit more open now, but there are these uh, other forms of foreign exchange reserves that they also hold, uh, which are not well quantified. For North Korea, where even GDP is state secret, uh, <laughs> no one really knows what the foreign exchange reserves are. What we can observe is some of the uh, drivers of the foreign exchange reserves. After all, these are residual from the balance of payment operations. So the drivers are indeed suggesting that they may be running low because North Korea needs to continue to import a number of things to, for its economy to survive and it cannot export very much. So the trade balance doesn't look too good. Tourism has essentially stopped with the COVID crisis and may not resume uh, quickly. Um, so a number of sources have dried up. There are foreign workers who also are the means to bring in foreign exchange in, in North Korea. Many of them have been repatriated, even though a number of them remain abroad with uh, tourist visas or in other ways, uh, they manage to, to stay abroad despite the sanctions. But uh, that's another source of a foreign exchange that has partially dried up. So a number of the uh, foreign exchange earning mechanisms are not uh, delivering the goods. And one can infer, even though it's a conjecture, that uh, yes, these reserves are, are, are being depleted. There's a related question. Since North Korea is such an import-dependent economy, uh, what does the COVID crisis mean for a country that depends so much on imports? Well, it depends on imports for certain things like oil, like uh, some agricultural goods, fertilizers, consumer goods. Some of these things are more problematic than others. I mean, if they can't import as many electronic goods from China as uh, they could last year, maybe this is not a big issue. But if they cannot get hold of the agricultural inputs that they need to population, that's a bigger, bigger issue. I think all the countries around the world are facing very severe challenges in the context of the COVID crisis. And we often talk about North Korea as being an isolated country, a hermit state. But of course, it isn't a hermit state. It has a deep connection with surrounding countries, China mainly, but also Russia, for example. And it is affected by this global crisis. Of course, so far, North Korea has not admitted to any COVID cases domestically, which is uh, interesting. There was a KEI talk on this not very long ago, and this remains uh, somewhat mysterious. But they are clearly very much alarmed by it domestically as well. They actually were among the first countries to take measures already around the 20th or 21st of January. They stopped the flights uh, from China and then they stopped tourism well before countries uh, elsewhere in the OECD uh, took similar measures so they are very uh, alarmed, in part because the health system is so fragile in, in North Korea, and so they would not be able to cope with a big number of infections. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Vincent Cohn, Randall Jones, and to you listeners for tuning in. You can find a link to the OECD report on North Korea in the description of this episode. We have also provided links to the report on North Korea's special economic zones that Vincent mentioned, and an interview with the author of the report also in the description of this episode. Please join us next week on Tuesday, May 26th for a webinar discussion with Dr. Alexis Dudden on what lies ahead for Korea-Japan relations. You can find the RSVP in the description of this episode. And if you're listening to this episode long after May 26th, you can find recordings from all of our events on our YouTube channel, where you can find us under K-O-R-E-A-E-C-O-N- O-M-I-C, 
INST. Hope to see you then.